Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton and joining me, as always, my friend, my neighbor, my colleague, my op, Mr. Mark Daly. And we were just talking off air. It is the middle of July and this is the fourth podcast that we've dropped this week, which is crazy. And we've got a bunch of stuff lined up for next week. But before we get started, because we've got some good stuff today, dude, how are you? I'm doing good, man. You know, it's funny because uh, like we were saying before we sat down, hit record here, it's like we, we've often talked, you know, you and I, like uh, like away from the show that, yeah, wouldn't it be cool to do like a daily show, do it like every day of the week or five days a week, I suppose. And it just seems like it's kind of getting there like on its own without even like conscious effort. It's just like, you know, it's, it's happening. It's happening. We are going to drop 100 episodes this year, maybe 110. Nobody nobody could ever complain about the volume. <laughs> like, There's a lot that people can criticize. You can never complain about the volume of shows that we're producing. That's for sure. Yeah, I think uh, you know we've done, what, this is episode 456 or 457 or something like 459. that? 459. 459. All yeah, of them we, classics. We're on track for 500 right around the Yas Grand, the Yas Grand Prix at oh the end goodness. of the season. Oh my goodness. Wow. The Abu Dhabi Grand Prix at the end of the year. So 500. <laughs> we got to do something crazy special blowout for 500 well just it'll end up being a normal show i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> we'll just forget like wait was that 500 yeah well we'll catch up to it about like two or three weeks after the fact whether people will be like dudes was that actually like episode 500 and i'm like yeah i guess you were right just kind of got lost in the blur Got lost to the crossfire. Anyways, uh, you wanted right off the top of the bat, uh, wanted to talk about our presence on social media. So why don't we yeah, start you know what? there? I actually, yeah. okay, you know what? That's perfect. And you know, we actually had a story lined up at the end of the show to talk a little bit about this, but I, I might as well mention it now. If you haven't already heard, out of out of absolutely nowhere, last week, Meta dropped their direct rival to Twitter. It's called Threads, and it it's an app that kind of coexists with Instagram, so the two are kind of married together. Um, and it's particularly notable because within a week, they had 100 million users, which is absolutely crazy. And it's notable as well because absolutely nobody saw this coming. And it's really interesting because you might assume that, of course, late last year, Elon Musk took over Twitter. He fired thousands of people and hundreds of high-level developers. You would have assumed that Meta just absorbed some of those. But according to Meta, they did this on their own. The project started in January. So they only started the project in January. They did it with existing internal developers, no support from the I don't want to say the cast-offs because that's terrible, but from the unfortunate from the developers who unfortunately lost their jobs with with Twitter, uh, but ultimately they they deployed it. And for me, this is particularly interesting because, and I don't want to get into kind of the politics because I think I think social media platforms have become hypercharged politically for obvious reasons. But the reason this was compelling to me, quite frankly, was one 
our listener base uses Instagram. So we've done polls, we've talked to people, they use Instagram. So we've wanted to make the move over, but neither of us really have the time. So we kind of put all of our energy into Twitter. And the reason that I was always reluctant to go to Instagram is I like to post tweets. I like to post stories. I like to post direct links to what we do here. That's not really feasible in, in Instagram, but threads makes that possible. So I'm super excited. The other thing that I will say quite candidly is I've become a little disillusioned with Twitter. And I think a lot of people have because you know I would log into our Scuderia F1 podcast account and I would scroll through my feed and there was a lot of very non-F1 related content, like very disturbing non-F1 related content that would come up. And I was just like, well, is this is this our followers posting this and, and kind of reacting to this? And it wasn't. And then I just like, I began to get something of an unsettled feeling on that platform. So we're going to stay and we're going to continue to provide show updates. But I think our home base is going to potentially be Instagram and threads. So if you have an Instagram account, it's super easy to set up a threads account. It just takes about 50 seconds, download the app and away you go. Uh, but yeah, so we're excited about that. And like I said, 100 million users in a week. Now, it's a little bit half-baked. There's no hashtags. I think emojis aren't really there. Uh, but it looks pretty cool. And if you like if you like Instagram, it's maybe a really good solution. Yeah, no more of these things like sort of like posting an image to Instagram. It's like, hey, we dropped episode 500 or 459, whatever we're doing today. We talked about blah, 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 link in our bio or something like that. That takes you to like Spotify exactly. or Apple. Exactly. Podcasts. They were kind of totally, workarounds, totally. but, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, especially or wasn't like, a, you know, really super easy for, for the user to kind of do it. So we'll see. It'd be kind of cool. But, uh, you know, if it works out, but, you know, it's kind of funny where you're sort of talking about like, uh, you know, you got Zuckerberg sort of heading up meta and you got Elon oh, and, Musk. And they're all stuff. evil. I was just going to say, it's be just very like, honest. All of these social media platforms yeah, are evil. Yeah, they're all sort of like, I was just going to say uh, that, that they all seem to be headed by like a real life Bond villain, you know, just uh, the way that. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> yeah. So, speaking about like Bond villains, so you and I are going to be hosting a watch party at your place on November 18th in your lair, well, your house. So, what to this reminder of the volcano? My, my lair is carved out of the side of a volcano. <laughs> I love uh, it. And the people will soon discover. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's going to be super cool because one, we're going to use it to raise funds for the Canadian Mental Health Association, something that's near and dear to both of our hearts. Uh, and as well as that, we're also going to use it. And I'm kind of putting pressure on ourselves that that will be the event that we kind of launch our, our merch. So I just had a great conversation right before we started the show with the individual that's doing the design work for our logo um, and for our new cover art. Um, Ship sending over some money via the old PayPal to get that going, but <laughs> we're finally going to have something despite talking about it for three years now. Yeah, I know, but it's finally happening as well. So um, one thing that's always been happening is our partnership with the Race Weekend magazine, and you can check them out at raceweekend or theraceweekend.com. So that's R-A-C-E-W-K-N-D.com. Enter in our promo code ScuderiaPod at checkout, receive 10% off. And also check out the uh, the good folks over at racingexclusives.com for one-of-a-kind and unique F1 merch. And that comes with an, uh, uh, sorry, an authentic certificate of authenticity so an authentic that's sort of like brought to you by the department of redundancy department so there you yeah. go <laughs> five minutes into this thing i've already lost track anyways um like you said we've had this is four show this week got a lot of shows coming up you've got uh, an up or another show coming up with trey kirby from the athletic no dunks podcast our show your show the return of the return of the return of uh, the mac our latest uh, you'll sit down conversation with mac to catch up and see how he's going with his career megan gilks you're doing uh 
um, update or another show with her coming up in mid-August. And then you, Sam, and Adam are doing a panel in Mina GP in July. So there you go. And on top of that, we got all these emergency pods, which has become like a thing. We did one with Danny Ricardo, or not with uh, Danny Ricardo, but about Danny Ricardo. You did one with the um, the emergency or no, emergency pod on the F1 we calendar. We did the calendar, yep. the 2024 calendar. We did the Alpine purchase with uh, with Vancouver, with our Vancouver boy, whose name escapes me now, Ryan Reynolds. I don't know why I was going crazy there. <laughs> and by the way, dude, the feedback, and just pat ourselves on the back a little bit, but lots of positive feedback for the Daniel Ricardo show. So oh, good, I appreciate it. Even though we didn't, even though we failed to mention Liam Lawson once or even mention the fact that Nick DeVries could have gone to Williams where he probably would have had a seat through the end of the year, missed a couple of nuggets, but I think we did a pretty good job otherwise. Well, it was literally an emergency. What is the uh, the situation was unfolding? So there you go. Well, we'll make notes so we're, we're a little bit more you know, up to speed next time. Um, you got here. So the, just uh, in regards to the 2024 F1 calendar emergency pod, you've got a bullet point in the outline for poll results. Cause I think you were, you were trying to get a feel and take the temperature of like uh, the community and find out, you know, like what is their magic number for the, 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 the length and size of the formula one calendar. Do you have those numbers handy? Yeah, I do. And it was really interesting because I just assumed everyone was like me and there's like 24 races is too much, but it was pretty much a 50-50 split, which was, hey, 50% said, hey, it's probably too much. And 50% said either it's perfect or I could take even more F1. Mm. And somebody did, and, and I apologize because I, I didn't pick up the, the user's name, but somebody had made a comment that who are we to complain about great content? right? Like if somebody's willing to serve up great content, who are we to complain about that? And it's just like, yeah, that's a pretty good point. I think the challenge for us sometimes is this show, for, Formula One, it's kind of like a hybrid experience for us, which is one, it's an enjoyable entertainment outlet, but at the same time, it's a little bit of work and mm -hmm. there's some anxiety and some stress and some pressure that goes towards putting the show together. And I think from my perspective, it's like, 20 race weekends a year, preparing psychologically for a race, taking notes, getting everything together is a lot, especially with all the weekly shows and the interviews. 24 is a lot more. That's like an additional month of, of Grand Prix. So yeah. that's kind of where I'm coming from. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I, I totally know what you mean. I mean, we have to be like uh, Max Verstappen or Lewis Hamilton every time we get into the studio here and be absolutely perfect. And uh, it, it's difficult because sometimes, you know, it, you have a tough day because both you and I have families. We've got other jobs that we do to pay the the, the bills, the old nine to five, and to sometimes uh, come in here. Sometimes we don't sit down to like 9.30 or 10 o'clock before we, we start doing this. And that's at the end of a very very, very long day and no amount of coffee or energy drinks is going to salvage anything at that point. So sometimes it's just like what you get is what you get, but we try to do our, our best. But uh, talking about doing your best, Max Verstappen's uh, race suit, his overalls he wore at the Canadian Grand Prix just a couple of uh, weeks ago, was auctioned off for 145 thousand US dollars. That is some serious, serious cash. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I totally agree. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago that it was going to be going up and all the proceeds are going to a specific charity, which is pretty cool. I would say this though, Daily, like of all of the F1 merch, of all of the F1 memorabilia, I think one of the things that I would really want, if I was a billionaire, if I was Mark Zuckerberg, like if I could own something, I would want to collect race used helmets. They just seem, they seem yeah. as something 
more permanent and physical and tangible to me. Like I have a thing for helmets. And if you look around my office, I've got a bunch of half scale helmets. I've got my old motorcycle racing helmet and stuff like that. But I have a thing for helmets. So if anyone's listening at home and they want to gift us a race use Formula One helmet, maybe a Nicholas Latifi helmet, I'm sure those are available. <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that's something I'm always looking to add to my collection. Yeah, helmets are cool. Uh, and anything, the, the thing I always thought to, that would be kind of like a cool thing would like be like, like the end plate off the end of a wing or like a front wing or rear rear ring or something like that because yeah any other body work is not really handy to put up but something like that would be uh pretty cool but uh helmets definitely are or it's also very very personal too because the drivers put a lot of thought into it and i mean you sat down and you did that great point. Uh, you, great point. you did that uh really really awesome podcast with uh tyler Santarusa a couple years ago the, the the helmet design artist and that was such a good show it was, it was so cool to hear you know what goes into the process that tyler does and how he sits down with the drivers and how together they they, they come up with like a vision and how tyler brings these like you know what what the driver has in mind and and brings that to life with, with stunning effect is really 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 cool okay moving on to the next one so apparently max has won 30 consecutive races on clockwise configurations that comes from f1 stats uh, guru and there's a new uh, new movement out there that all the races for the rest of the season should be run in counterclockwise just to throw max off <laughs> but that is that, that's kind of interesting though like uh, what are those uh, funny kind of like stats that uh, that that comes up so uh, kudos to F1 Stats Guru for finding that one. So at the British Grand Prix this past weekend at Silverstone, only 26 overtakes. And you would think with a, a power circuit like Silverstone, where there are ample places to to, to pass, that uh, you know passing would be magnitudes larger than we saw. But uh, 26 is not horrible, but not great either. What, what do you think about that one, Mark? I'll just contextualize that a little bit too. So there's 26 uh, and 17 of them were shown during the broadcast, but formula data analysis at F data analysis had a great tweet that I, I just stumbled across a few moments ago. And they said there was a couple of reasons for that. One was fewer drivers started out of position versus what we would typically see. Uh, two, many changes of position happened when pitting under the safety car and the quick corners at Silverstone make following the car in front harder. So they aren't, they aren't slow, um, kind of challenged, small, or I would say they're not slow technical corners, they're high speed corners. And when you've got a high speed corner, these cars are throwing off an awful lot of dirty air. So that's kind of counterintuitive to kind of that logical sense that, hey, it's a high speed circuit with high speed corners, there's going to be opportunities to overtake. But as we know, with these floors lifted this year, a lot of that dirty air is back once again. So maybe last year we would have seen less of it, though, though we probably would have seen some porpoising. But yeah, a couple of interesting reasons why we didn't see so many, so many overtakes this year at Silverstone. Yeah, shame. Hopefully, uh, you know they get that whole porpoising thing figured out once and for all, and we can run these cars the way that they were intended to be. Okay, uh, just uh, really quickly, I'm going to give a, a championship update, and then we'll do a fantasy update. Then we'll head into the break, and then we'll come back and start uh, touching on some of the news and uh, parts usage update for some of the different cars and drivers. Uh, just quickly, in the drivers' uh, championship, we have Max Verstappen leading the way with 255 points, 99 points ahead of his uh, struggling teammate Sergio Perez, who has 150. 
156. Fernando Alonso is third in the Drivers' Championship with 137. Lewis Hamilton is closing in surely, but uh, slowly but surely on Fernando. He has 121. And you have Carlos Sainz rounding out the top five with 83 points, which is only a single point ahead of George Russell. So George knocking on the door to get into the top five in the Drivers' uh, World Championship. So moving over to the constructor side, Red Bull leading the way with a 411 points after 10 races. Mercedes second with 203. Aston Martin with 181. Ferrari with 157. And McLaren fifth with 59 points. So, Hammy, if you have the fantasy update um, ready, why don't we just uh, do that I quickly? Do, I do, All I right. do. Awesome. Sitting tidy. Sitting tidy and hung- hungry. Sitting tidy and comfortable <laughs> at number one, like he did last week. Mr. No Doze. Number two, Vince Des one. Number three, Vince Des two. Uh, number three, also Ole's Lena sitting at number five, sliding to number five. L1 F1. Sitting at number six, Static versus the prior week. Nathan's team. Number seven, No Change Here. The Bad Guy one. Number eight, No Change Here. Bengals Bubs. Number eight, also No Change. The Bad Guy Bye Bye. Number 10, No Change once again. Red Devil seven. Up to number 11, up to Noah Good. Static at number 11, Buenos Diaz. And at number 13, Charles Ciel, also static. Oh, I should I should give a shout out as well. Number 14, moving up to number 14, a big move. Uh, Gotifi team and sliding to 15, fire ferrets. So big shout out to No Doze for locking on to that number one spot. He's currently sitting just four points ahead of Vince Des team number one, but no movement between those two this week. Maybe we'll see some uh, some change after Hungary. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. So actually, I, I've just had a tap on the shoulder here in the studio, meaning I read the the outline, looked at the time that we've used. We're actually a little bit ahead of schedule. So in, instead of jumping right to the break, Mark, why don't we just uh, quickly now hit that uh, parts usage update and, uh, you know, just see who's at, you know, who's used what so far after, you know, yeah, almost yeah, a halfway yeah. through the season. For sure. And I think this is useful to know because we're as we're getting into the back half of the season, we're probably going to start to hear about drivers that have exceeded their yearly allocation of specific parts. And of course, once they do that, they start to incur penalties. And that could be kind of a bit of a downer on the back half of the season when you consistently see cars take a five or 10 place grid penalty because they're taking on additional parts. But a couple of things to remind people of when it comes to internal combustion engines, so that core 1.6 liter V6, drivers have four of them. And of course, if you go back to the V8 era, they would have eight, nine, 10 of those, and they would just drive those things into the ground, burn them out after two races and go on to a fresh one. Now they have to make four internal combustion engines last the entire season. They get four turbochargers, they get four MGUHs, they get four MGUKs, they get two energy stores, which is the battery, um, they get two control electronics, and they get eight exhaust systems. So a couple of the things that I should call out pretty quickly is that if you look at the grid top to bottom, virtually everyone is already on their third power unit, including Max Verstappen, including Sergio Perez. But there's a couple of notable outliers here. Pierre Gasly is already on his fourth internal combustion engine, Nico Hulkenberg also on his fourth, and Logan Sargent, Lance Stroll, Oscar Piastri, and Lewis Hamilton are actually only on their second internal combustion engine. So that's notable to consider as the year goes on and on. When it comes to turbochargers, again, everyone gets four of those. And if you look at the grid, Pierre Gasly has four. Actually, Pierre Gasly's in terrible shape. He's used four internal combustion engines, four turbochargers, four MGUHs, and he is on four MGUK. So he's in a terrible shape and he's going to start racking up a ton of penalties. But when it comes to turbochargers, Fields 
pretty spread. A lot of people on their second, a lot of people on their third, Nico Hulkenberg on his fourth, and MGUH the same. But I think this is something we'll probably pay a little bit more attention to simply because as drivers start to hit that threshold, they're going to start taking penalties. And all of a sudden, that will have significant consequences for the races. Like, hey, if I'm Charles Leclerc and I qualify on pole, well, I'm on my fifth power unit. That means whatever number of grid place drop like it starts to impact one it impacts the enjoyability of the sport because it's not a lot of fun but again we have these really tight restrictions on these components because these components are super expensive and because there's a cost cap but also because if you don't have restrictions on the number of individual components teams can use that's going to benefit a team like mercedes or red bull or ferrari or aston martin that can simply roll out a new power unit every race like hey that would be a competitive advantage if we can bring a fresh internal combustion engine every single race because we can afford to do so we're going to do this. So again, it's to bring that pack closer together and to penalize those teams that exceed the thresholds that are that are in the regulations. But in terms of uh, parts that have been used, if you go behind Pierre Gasly's garage, like the recycling bin is overflowing with the used components and parts. They're they're now stacking them in the in the lane there. Whereas Lewis Hamilton's is completely empty, and Logan's as well. There, there's hardly totally, anything in totally, there. So totally, yeah, it, it, it's amazing though how every year some some drivers just uh, go through so much more in terms of uh, you know parts uh, and and ICUs and everything else uh, compared to to other drivers. I mean, was it remember last year Ferrari were just like they were churning through like every yeah. single like bit of hardware it seemed on those engines on the power units like there was no tomorrow it was incredible and remember too that if you have a bad crash you could lose a gearbox you could easily lose an exhaust you could easily lose an mguh right so it's not always just a matter of the fact that hey these things have hit their mileage threshold because the teams do manage mileage on these individual components very closely because they know the optimal operating distances of these components in some cases they just fail and we've seen that in the races where sometimes these internal combustion engines just let go and it's gone and then all of a sudden you're three internal combustion engines deep five races into the season so it's not always about the way the driver's racing sometimes it's that they've had a crash sometimes they've been involved in a crash and collected by somebody else but again something to watch oh as i'm looking at this as well i'm looking at uh, poor pierre gasly he's also on five exhausts I don't understand how he's burned <laughs> through five exhausts, no pun intended. Yeah, I don't know. It's just uh, it's one of those years for, for poor old uh, PG. Anyway, so time for a quick break. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment after a quick word from our sponsor. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All 
All right. Welcome back to the show. And as we go into the second segment here, you've got uh, another cool uh, graphic here from F1 Stats Guru. So a first in 14 years. So for the first time since 2009, we've had five different constructors that have led the opening opening lap of a Grand Prix uh, this year. And uh, as I said, that's the the most since 2009. So if you backtrack uh, 14 years, the five teams that led a lap or opening lap that year include Braun GP, Williams, Red Bull, Toyota, Renault, McLaren, and Forced India. And this year, so that's, uh, you know, obviously a lot more than five. That is what, seven, eight? You know, there's quite a few in that list there. Uh, this year, we've had five, and that include Red Bull, Aston Martin, Mercedes, Ferrari, and McLaren. So kind of cool that the the two common uh, names there are McLaren and Red Bull, despite uh, a you know 14-year gap uh, between the two. So something's going right except uh by the time we get to you know to the checkered flag after the lights turn green is very very different because it always seems to be either max verstappen and occasionally sergio perez now this next one this graph i think you're gonna have to like explain this one a little bit uh, so we've got here points def- deficit of world drive driver championships uh, to maximum possible points in a season so 2010 to 2023 seasons so if you could explain this one so this basically covers the you know the gamut here in the last uh, dozen or so years i'm not quite sure what we're comparing here yeah so i'm scratching my chin uh having assumed that you would understand this graph when i put it into the the outlet so we're going to learn together mr daly we're going to take all of our degrees and all of our experience but i think basically what it's showing here is like hey after x number of rounds how many points are we're the, uh, the ultimate, so let me try this again. After X number of rounds, how many points were the ultimate world drivers championships away from having scored maximum points on the season? So like, if you take a look at this um, and you look at boo, 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 max in 2023, after the first Grand Prix, he was zero points away because he had scored maximum points to that point in the season. He'd won the Grand Prix, had the fastest lap, he'd accumulated as much points as possible. But I think what you can see here is that so far this year, through 10 races, no driver, at least since 2010, has been closer to him in terms of collecting the maximum available points at the championship at that point. So what the graph is really saying is Max's performance so far has been absolutely legendary. And if you look at some close comps, other drivers that have had comparable starts in terms of accumulating the maximum amount of points available, looks like Max or it looks like Lewis was really good in... Actually, I'm looking at this a little bit more closely. Uh, yes, yeah, Seb was good in 2011. Seb was good in 2013. Lewis was good in 2015. But nobody comes close to Max. So again, just another illustration of, of how dominant he's been. Again, of all the world champions since 2010, nobody has accumulated more points as a percentage of the total points available through 10 rounds than Max Verstappen. Yeah, because the delta between where Max actually is at uh, 255 compared to what, uh, you know, where he could be for perfect is like, a, like looking at the graph to, seems to be about like 25 or 30 points. It's not labeled uh, specifically. So, I mean, when, when we've been saying, Mark, uh, over, well, basically every week and after every, you know, Grand Prix on the recap show that uh, we've been saying that, that Max has been basically perfect all year, <laughs> he really has. And like when, when you look at this graph and see how it's been, you know, 
like laid out so starkly like that, it really, really illustrates how good he's been, right? Yeah, the other consideration too, and yeah, I totally agree with everything you're saying, that when you look at this chart, you have to be cognizant of not only the driver's performance, but the performance of their teammate. Because again, this this result wouldn't be so stark if Sergio Perez was doing more to take points off of Max. And again, Mm -hmm. the only way that's going to happen at this point is by taking the fastest lap. It's going to be taking race victories over Max. But based on where Sergio seems to be right now, uh, Max could very well finish the season with with the smallest delta between points available and points scored of any driver in the modern era of Formula one the v8 era and and the turbo hybrid era which is just bonkers yeah absolutely right okay so let's uh, move on to the next story this comes from uh, autosport.com from alex uh, kalena ukas i hope that uh, i said that uh, correctly so 10 things that we learned from the uh, british grand prix last uh, weekend we'll start at number one verstappen and perez continue their respective brilliant and bad runs uh number two north stars as mclaren turns the corner on his 2023 car and uh, number three is piastri proves mclaren was right to fight for his services number four f1 engine information secrets are heading your way oh that's a bit spicy f1's most authentic film has all the kit to achieve its aim that's a bit of a teaser for later in the show number six is alex albon is picking up where russell left off at williams Number seven, Mercedes finds strong pace in spite of Diva 2.0. That's uh, become a thing. Ferrari, uh, Ferrari's hero to almost zero performance. <laughs> That's a good one. Aston Martin's form is fading, but Alonso keen not to stress. And then finally, number 10, we have... Uh, I missed number 10. Where did it go? Oh, new Pirelli tire construction is up to the task. So, Mark, we've got uh, 10 pretty good storylines here. Some of them we touched on in the recap show on the weekend which one of these ones would you like to dive into you know what i i think i think our show on i think our show on the weekend was pretty good i think the week before we left a little bit on the table and there's a couple of things that we could have dove into but i i think based on where we we landed i think that's uh i think that's a pretty good pretty good summary yeah, absolutely. The, the the ones that I that I think that uh, you know bear mentioning, uh, and well, we're going to talk about this authentic film one, so we'll park that uh, for now because that's uh, up later in the show. Um, the one that I think is interesting uh, too, uh, you know, Alex picked up like uh, we discussed here that uh, Piastri and, and and McLaren, man, he he must be so thankful that uh, that uh, that he ended up where he did because it, it was it was interesting too because in Canada and like and and when or in Austria, sorry when. When when, uh, Lando got the new updates on the car, just how much that improved him. And then Oscar got it this uh, past weekend. So we're seeing now that, uh, you know, now that he's got a competitive car, and of course, it's only one race. But uh, certainly, I liked a lot of what I saw from Lando Norris, or sorry, not just Lando Norris, but uh, Oscar Piastri this past weekend. I totally agree. And I think we should all be excited that that team seems to have exercised some of their demons related to the early performance of the MCL 60. And I I think it's also good because not like Lando and Oscar needed to redeem themselves because I think they're generally very well regarded within F1 circles in terms of their personality and their racing characteristics and things like that. But I think there was a lot of people that still question Oscar's departure from Alpine and the way that went down, especially since he'd been part of their academy and they funded so much of his development but for him now to go to that team and be just 
just a one spot off a podium at at McLaren's home Grand Prix is 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 pretty remarkable. And I think like like Zach like Zach said at the British Grand Prix, like look, you know what? We're not stressing, we're not sweating that ultimately he didn't score a podium because he's got many 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 in front of him. And based on how the MCL sixty is turning out, um, there's every reason to think he might score a podium this year if things break correctly for him. That would be great if that uh, that actually happened. And then, uh, hang on, where did I put my notes here? Just to toggle back. Here we go. Um, yeah, I don't think there's uh, two others. You know, too many others. That I think we really need to to get into. We've talked quite a bit about Max and uh, and uh, and Perez, and you know, it's just. Um, I'm very eager to talk to about this one here. I don't want to get ahead of myself about this F1 film that uh, that Brad Pitt is doing, but then let's just talk really, really quickly about Alex Albon and uh, you know him picking up where where uh, George Russell left off, and you know it, it was kind of interesting too because you know it all kind of like blends in nicely to this. I think it's a, a tweet that you've thrown into the into the notes here from Philip Horton who said Danny Ricardo places Nick DeFries who replaced Pierre Gasly who replaced Alex Albon who replaced Brendan Hartley who replaced Carlos Sainz, who replaced Danny Kvyat, who replaced Danny Ricardo. I think that's the Alpha Tauri slash Toro Rosso circle uh, of <laughs> I life. I love that. Yeah, you I know, it's, that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting when you do like that musical chairs of the drivers at Alpha Tauri slash, uh, you know, Toro Rosso like Philip did. It's, uh, you know, that's quite a list of drivers that have been in the seat of that uh, car. But, you know, Alex Albon, who was in that list, of course, broke from, from, from the whole Red Bull pro program and is now in his second season with uh, with with Williams and Williams obviously not uh, you know a top of the grid uh, kind of team but over the past couple of races they've been you know turning some eyes and you know getting some 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 looks for for positive reasons for good reasons for once and Alex Albon has been doing some really really good things there I mean he was exciting to watch in qualifying where do you end up in the race now I think it was P8 so I mean that's a very respectable finish uh, for, for for Williams so you know, Alex uh, certainly is, uh, you know, doing a lot to uh, impress there. And, and George, I mean, I, th- I think he had some decent races at uh, at Williams, but I think George was known more for his his qualifying you know, runs in, you know, when he was with Williams, because I mean, he kind of got that uh, that that nickname, Mr. Saturday. I mean, it, it wasn't derogatory or anything like that, but it just I think that even though he was in a fairly uncompetitive uh, Williams car, I, I think it really just demonstrated, OK, this is what this guy is capable of just with this single lap pace in, in a Williams. You know, could you imagine what George Russell could be capable of given a half decent car? And we, and we still don't really know what George Russell is capable of because, you know, the whole W13, W14 is not really the same sort of lineage. Well, we know what the lineage oh, yeah, is, but we, we will be talking about we're going to talk about that a yeah. little bit later. Yeah, but I mean, still, we've seen George do some good things in that. I mean, everybody will remember Brazil uh, last year, but uh, Alex uh, certainly doing just, uh, some just on some that good that Williams too. piece yeah. too, because we we're going to probably talk a little. Well, we are going to talk a little bit about Nick DeVries, but you know, just hindsight is so 2020, right? Like we sat here last year and I think the general consensus amongst the the media and the pundits and the analysts was like, look, Nick DeVries was pretty dismissive of that Williams drive when that was offered to him at the end of 2022, right? Going into 2023. And of course, Helmut Marco came in and seduced him and brought him over to Alpha Tauri. And now he's out of a race seat, 10 races into the championship. And all of a sudden that Williams car is looking pretty good, especially on the low downfall 
reinforce high-speed circuits. Logan Sargent looked absolutely brilliant at, at Silverstone this weekend. Like he's he's developing pretty rapidly. Like, yeah, you just gotta wonder how different things would have been if if Nick DeVries had taken, had ultimately taken that that seat at Williams. Yeah, you know, and just to sort of keep, uh, you know, if we keep on this theme of the Alpha Tauri Toro Rosso circle of life that started and ended with uh, Danny Ricardo, you've got a nice uh, story here uh, from oh, yeah. Ed let Straw me, let over me jump at, the, into at the this race. com. Yeah, please. But first, I want to pull back the curtains and apologize to you, my friend, because typically as the week goes on, I provide updated outlines and we kind of collaborate on them. You said at the beginning of the show tonight, Hamilton, do I have the latest outline? I said, Yes. And you said, Mark, <laughs> we are about to record. Have I got the latest version? And I said, probably. And it turns out <laughs> you didn't. So, so poor Daly in the background, I'm flipping him a new outline, is adjusting on the fly. So while, while, <laughs> while Daly's uh, adjusting to the newer outline, I'm going to take the story. So one of the things that became pretty evident this week is that uh, obviously Daniel Ricardo is going to rejoin the F1 grid. And I think there was a lot of excitement and people were super excited. They love his personality. They love his charisma. They love his energy. Uh, he's an absolute dream for sponsorship, et cetera, et cetera. It's really good for the commercial side of the business. But one of the things that I think is only starting to dawn on people is ultimately that the car he's going to be fitted to is absolutely incompatible with his driving style. So I, I think we've all generally acknowledged this year that the Alpha Tower, the AT04, is a bad car. But I don't know that we've done a lot to understand why it's a bad car. And I, I'm going to take a moment to try and walk you through this. So I think the first thing that's really important to understand about Daniel Ricciardo is he absolutely loves a Formula One car that is really, really strong under braking. He likes to go deep and hard into corners. And if you think back over the years, that was one of his trademark moves, right? It was he would go deeper into a corner than a competitor that he's racing and then overtake them in the corner. The other thing he really, really, really likes, and these two, these two characteristics, attributes are married. He likes a car that can go deep, and he likes a car that has really strong corner entry. The McLaren had neither of those, and those are two of possibly the biggest weaknesses of the AT04. So the very things that plagued him and haunted him at McLaren are the same things that are are causing the AT04 and the Alpha Tauri drivers to struggle so much. So it's good to be a real challenge for him to be able to adapt to that car. Now, the AT04 struggles really badly with rear instability. That's what leads to the problems with braking late. It's what causes issues with really smooth, strong corner entry. And a lot of this is really based on the fact that when that car brakes and it goes hard into the corner, the rear ride height lifts considerably because the load from the downforce escapes. So as you slow that downforce unlocks from the car and it escapes, but the rear ride height lifts. Now that creates aerodynamic imbalance, which isn't good for turning. And what that ultimately leads to is a car that goes into the corner and it understeers. So as a driver, I'm not on the optimal racing line. So if I go hard, I go deep, I'm going to be off the racing line and then I'm going to lose time or I have to adjust on the fly. So for all of these reasons, it's a car that maybe could be good in the straights, although it's not particularly slippery, but it's really, really bad in medium speed, low speed, and even high speed corners for all of these reasons. And those are the things that haunt Daniel Ricardo. Now, if you flash over to the Alpha Tauri team, earlier this year, their technical director, Jody Eggington, said, 
based on all of these observations I just made, he said, that's one of the targets we didn't quite nail preseason. And we were in no doubt what we wanted to do. We are looking to improve rear load at high speed ride heights in a very basic sense. And it's the load drop off of these ride heights at the moment, which causes that instability that I just spoke to. If we've improved the rear load on the entry phase, if you've got more rear load, you've got more stability. And we're working on trying to carry that further into the corner so that the driver can push harder towards late entry exit with the late entry and with that part being a weakness to try to address that you end up making other areas of the car slower. For example, let's say you wanted to add aero balance for high speed, which improves the balance, but also gives you more load. If you're low speed, or if you're sorry, if your low speed entry is a limitation, then you can limit how much flapper error balance you can add. So weakness in one area can actually have implications or everywhere. Obviously, we're trying to find a compromise that gives us globally the best lap time, but that's the trade off that we're doing each week. Really. So I think while we're all very excited, I think we should be cognizant of the fact that this is not a car that's suited to Daniel Ricardo and, and his driving style whatsoever. So I'm excited. I can't wait to see what happens in Hungary, but I think we just need to be cognizant of the fact that this car carries over some of the characteristics that made the McLaren so difficult for him to drive, Mark. Yeah, that's very cool and very insightful uh, as, as well. And it was interesting too, you know, according to Ed's uh, article that uh, that that Ricardo, after spending some time in the Red Bull simulator, that, you know, it seems that uh, the the driver that we knew those characteristics, you know, the last of the late breakers, uh, like you say, that uh, he would go so hard and so deep into corners, and we saw him do some amazing overtakes when he was at his uh, at his peak. That old Danny Ricardo has at least started to to reemerge in some of the simulator sessions. So. There, I think the hesitation there, though, is when he's yeah. been doing simulator sessions, that's the RB19. That is a fundamentally yes. car. He has yeah. not been doing sim sessions in the ATR. Yeah, so yeah, darn right, yeah. he's in Italy right now in the sim learning that car. But I, I think we just need... All I'm saying is let's be, yep. let's be cautious. But I guess the question is really, we know what, we know what the... And I was going to ask you this on the podcast that we did during the, the recording a couple of days ago, but what's the calculus for Red Bull here? That if you're putting Daniel Ricciardo in an Alpha Tauri, which is where he probably doesn't really want to be long term, it's because you're basically giving him an audition for the RB19 to sit beside Max next year. The key thing there, though, is Sergio Perez is actually under contract for 2024. But I think, as we all know, contracts in Formula One are completely worthless, totally worthless. Yes. But I was going to say that, yeah. Yeah. I think if he has a strong year, I, I guess a strong remainder of the year, maybe that's enough to impress Helmut Marco and Christian Horner. Maybe he gets the RB19, especially if Sergio Perez continues to struggle on the back half that you bring him up. Because again, commercially, that makes a lot of sense. And then you backfill... You backfill Daniel Ricciardo with Liam Lawson, who is, of course, over in Japan right now, competing in a high-level open-wheel racing series there. And one of the questions that we got or I guess later this week after we did that Daniel Ricardo emergency podcast is you guys did talk about Liam Lawson. Why was Daniel Ricardo the option here and not Liam Lawson? And I think there's probably a couple of reasons. And I think one of them is that Lawson is far less commercially attractive to Red Bull. And I think that's always important here when it comes to attracting and retaining sponsors. But at the end of the day, Lawson is just less of a known quantity. Like this team knows 
Daniel Ricardo. He's been around the RB19 all season. He's been around Christian Horn. He's just a known quantity, and I think they know where he is psychologically. And I think it would probably be more disruptive to Liam Lawson's development to bring him over midseason, whereas you can bring Daniel Ricardo in and maybe open up a seat for Liam Lawson so he can start fresh next year, going through the sim, going through the development of the car, and going to winter testing. But I think that's probably one of the reasons. But I think the calculus here, and I don't know if you agree, is, hey, we're giving Daniel Ricardo a what, 12, 13 race audition to replace Sergio Perez. And like we said on Tuesday, like Sergio Perez is under immense pressure now. Yeah, totally. And I, I don't buy for a second that, uh, you know, because uh, there, there's no immediate candidate to, to replace him, that there, there there's no internal, external pressure for Perez. And also because uh, due to the fact that he's under contract till the end of 2024, much like yourself, I completely agree that Formula One contracts are not worth the, the actual or digital paper that they're printed on and that they could be shredded you know, physically or, you know, virtually at that, you know, at the, at the flick of a switch, you know, quite literally it could happen. So I, I don't buy for a moment that, you know, that there's no pressure on Sergio to just take his time and get this figured out. All's going to be good because, you know, Formula One is the ultimate results business, right? That, uh, you know, w- what happens on Sunday. And if you continue to struggle for like an extended period of time, people are going to be looking at that. And I, I think that uh, Sergio has to be hyper aware of that and must be quietly panicking to himself. And I, I think Christian Horner even said this week that that a lot of Sergio's problems are due just to the, the immense amount of pressure that Sergio is putting on himself to perform. And, you know, he says just perhaps he's, he's overthinking thinking this thing but th- there's there's nothing to lose by putting Danny Ricardo into that that Alpha Tauri compared to Liam Lawson uh because you know like you say he's a known quantity if um you know if 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 he doesn't do any better than than, than Nick DeFries did then you know big deal right you know the season already wasn't going good but if daddy ricardo can rediscover some of that form then the potential to do better and then if he you know finds the form of danny ricardo from old and sergio struggles for the rest of the year and don't get me wrong i'm i'm not cheering here silently or publicly 100 percent agree 100 percent agree not neither of us are cheering for the downfall of sergio perez exactly exactly like uh, you know i i've i've enjoyed watching him and and i like to see him get that back on track but i think that if if you're christian horner or helmet marco or any one of the uh, you know the, the the brass at red bull you have to do the, the the right thing i mean the right thing is to win and to get as many points as you that 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 you can because that that's what you're there to do and you you can't have a driver struggle for a prolonged period of time so if Perez has lost it he's he's lost it and then they have to think about okay well who else are they going to put into that car and so who else Daly, is available let me yeah. ask you a question okay. what happens imagine this scenario Sergio continues to struggle Daniel Ricardo struggles then what's your option do you roll back Sergio Perez again do you do you replace Sergio Perez with Yuki if Yuki continues his upward trajectory? He was great in the back half of 2022. He's been good this year. Do you promote him to Red Bull? Like, so we keep, but, I think we yeah, keep talking about Daniel Ricciardo being a slam yeah. dunk, but what if he's not? And what if Sergio Perez isn't good? 
Yeah, well, that's that's a great question, and I don't necessarily think that uh, that uh, Ricardo is going to be a slam dunk. That we're going to see the the Danny Ricardo of say pre twenty eighteen. I mean, it'd be great if it does. I mean, it'd be a great resurrection the story that uh, that he's re, you know rediscovered his form and has got his career back on track. But yeah, I mean, you pose like an interesting scenario that you know Yuki continues to develop. He becomes a serious option to replace Sergio Perez at uh, at Red Bull. Then what do they do? Do they still you know, switch out Perez and, and Yuki, and then you have like two thirty-five-year-olds at uh, at a development team at AlphaTauri, which is completely against like the whole point of that team existing, because that's supposed to be a team that's developing drivers from the Red Bull Academy, which you know we we talked about uh, you know quite a bit uh, just the other day, and how that uh, that that system that development funnel just isn't working. It's just not developing and producing the drivers that it should and it just to me it just seems like such a like bizarre scenario that you you know like to even even to, to like speculate about it here on the podcast like to have two 30 plus year old drivers in uh in, in a development team that that i think would be like peak dysfunctionality or peak the peak failure of the red bull driver academy and therein lies the question that we talked about on tuesday and if you haven't checked out the emergency pod do it but what what is Helmut Marco's role at this point? Like if if his job is driver development and they're clearly not dri- developing drivers internally and there's this ongoing chaos, all of which, by the way, is masked by Max Verstappen. You you hit, I don't want to say you hit the lottery because they, they, they obviously identified the talent and they nurtured him correctly, et cetera, et cetera. But if they didn't have Max Verstappen, where yeah, where yeah, are they? But Mark, right now? I'm going to jump in here, right? Because I'm going to go back to say what uh, what I did the other day. Is you wind this thing back to 2016? Max just wasn't talking to the Red Bull group. He was also talking with the Mercedes, and Toto at the time was only willing to give Max a reserve driver role. Totally recognized that Max was a generational talent. Sky's the limit with this kid, but Red Bull was willing to put him in the cockpit of a of a race car in the cockpit of a Formula One car at Alpha Tower or back then Toro Rosso and let him do his thing. Let him get out there, get into races and, and, and do what he needs to do. Mercedes weren't willing to take that risk at that point. And, and, and why should they? In 2016, you had Lewis Hamilton had just uh, come off, what, like five world champions? He just recorded his, what, his fifth world championship at that point, fourth world championship, whatever it was. You had Nico Rosberg that was had been knocking on the door, and then he won the world championship himself in 2016. I mean, nobody was going to replace either one of those drivers with a, like an unknown 16-year-old. And I, I know there was a lot of talk at the time that just be, due to the toxicity between Lewis and Nico, that they, that they were willing to part with one or either of those drivers if you go back uh, far enough in time. But the thing was, AlphaTauri was willing to put Max into a car. So it, it's not like they they won the lottery, like you say. But I think that they were fortunate because they were willing to take the risk to put Max into the car. And where Red Bull had that benefit is they, they, they had were able to do so. They had a junior team on yeah, the grid the that nobody team. else had. Yeah. And, and not even Mercedes at that point could park Max in a, in a customer team, put him in Williams, who at that time would have would, would, would been like Felipe Massa and, and, and Valtteri Bottas, which at Williams at that time was, let's not forget, that was a top Valtteri five team. Valtteri was their young prospect, yeah. right? Valtteri, Valtteri was their was a, prospect. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, that was a good driver pairing that you had at Williams with Massa and Valtteri Bottas. So, I mean, the thing was, you know, Red Bull was willing to take take the risk they had the space within you know their their two teams to do so uh, 
And, you know, so it worked out for them. I mean, that's, you know, but, you know, it's not like they, they brought them up from the ground up, you know, it's just yeah. uh, the, the whole, yeah. I, I'm going to bring some habanero heat to this conversation, but uh, Crash.net, a, a reputable motorsports uh, publication, uh, wrote this week that both Red Bull and Aston Martin have reportedly held talks with Charles Leclerc in recent months. Um, according to Crash.net, Red Bull approached Leclerc at the end of May to quote unquote understand if there was any possibility that the paths with Ferrari could separate. And this comes on the cusp of a, another report that indicated that Liberty is pressuring the sport's biggest teams to do everything in their power to secure two all-star drivers in their lineup. So I think when we look at Red Bull today, you've got one great driver and you've got a superstar driver. And I think for the sake of the spectacle, I think what Liberty's leaning on these teams to do is, hey, you've got the financial resources, driver salaries aren't covered by the cost cap, you need to do everything possible to get the two best drivers available into your car. So interesting, interesting that Red Bull, again, again, just a report is continuing to look outside the academy. You know, you know that that is fascinating, right? Because uh, you know you, you're bringing the habanero heat with that, right? So I'm, I'm going to build on that. I'm going to throw a little bit of hot sauce on this. I mean, you know, Liberty would love that, right? I mean, when, you know, Total Wolf obviously hated the situation between Nico and Max. I mean, that was a nightmare for a team principal to have to deal with, and must have caused all sorts of stress and turmoil for him and everybody within the team. But for Liberty. That's gold. Oh. I mean that that is like that's what you want, right? It was the only reason right? that because half of us were watching in 2014, 15, 16, right? Exactly. Like, and that that's gold for people like us because that gives us, you know, that that's show fodder and things like that. And you know, you know, Toto could say something, well, you know, I'm just going to use Toto because, you know, like that's a relevant example. He could say, well, I don't want a situation like that. I don't want like a Lewis versus a Nico, you know, like part 2. You know, I you know, I I don't need to deal with that. And then, you know, the retort the the comeback would be, well, you know, your team principal of a Formula One team, that's exactly what you're getting paid to do. This is like, you know, part of like, this is in your job description of duties and responsibilities is to manage your drivers. But, you know, the, the sport and the fans want to see that. And if you have, you know, like, a, you know, you have two drivers that are like oil and water, you know, that's, that's, you know, that sucks for you, but that's great for everybody else that loves to you know to, to see that you know totally. the, 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 100% here for the drama here for the drama is in a way you could argue that Charles Leclerc is possibly a wasted talent right now right like he's saddled oh, yeah. with a car totally. that isn't going to win a championship he's he's a driver that's won five grand prix he has 19 pole positions he's been on the podium 26 times he's capable of winning a world championship with the right car for the sake of the spectacle i kind of get where liberty's coming from here right now which is look you know what Red Bull, you owe it. And again, these are my words, not Liberty's words. I'm not Stefano Domenicali, and I don't know how Stefano Domenicali thinks. But like, hey, for the sake of the sport, for the spectacle, imagine if you had two drivers of near equivalent talent in the same car. And again, I'm not suggesting Charles Leclerc is Max Verstappen. That's certainly not the case. But at least he could give Max a run for his money in a way that Sergio isn't. 
Yeah, totally, right? And Charles Leclerc, how old is Charles now? 24, 25, 25? Just 25. 25. So, yeah, when you say like uh, that, that he's a wasted talent at Ferrari, yeah, that sounds a little bit harsh, but Charles has got to think, I'm, I'm pretty much in the prime of my career right now. I have several seasons of Formula One under my belt. I know that I could win races. I know what I can do when I get into the car. I mean, look what he did when he was driving the Sauber. I mean, the delta between himself and Marcus Ericsson. Look what Marcus has done in IndyCar. I mean, I mean, he he's done some pretty good stuff over here stateside in, in, in IndyCar. So he's not like, you know, a terrible driver. I mean, he's a good driver, but I mean, neither of them were in the greatest car. But the, the thing was, Charles was doing stuff with that Sauber that Marcus Erickson was not capable of doing. And it was it was pretty obvious that, uh, you know, w- once Charles was in a Formula One car, it was just going to be a matter of time. It was not it was not if he lands with the top team, but which top team does he does he land with? So, I mean, Ferrari at the time made the most sense because you had Kimi, you had Seb. Kimi was best his best. Seb looked like he was getting pretty close to his best before dates. And, you know, it just made sense for Charles to go there. But Ferrari, you know, Ferrari's Ferrari. They've struggled for the last uh, number of years. And the thing is, maybe they get it together under the, the, the guidance and the leadership of Frederick Vasseur. But the question is, if you're Charles Leclerc, is like, I'm 25 right now. Do I really want to sit around here for another five years before Fred can get this the, the, this this battleship turned around and pointed in the right direction and get this thing, you know, going where it needs to go? When you know, I could go to Red Bull, I could go to Aston Martin or whoever that uh, gives me that opportunity to win now. That uh, that that Ferrari's not going to be able to deliver for a, for a couple of uh, years potentially, right? I mean, it, it's a fascinating subject to, to 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 speculate about. Anyways, I want to park it there for a moment. Uh, we're late for. A break so let's uh, do that we'll come back on the flip side uh want to just talk uh, just quickly wrap up the this discussion just uh with uh just you know, with uh in regards to nick defries move on to the next one so we'll do so in just a moment so don't go away we will be right back All right, welcome back to the show. So just to wrap up this uh, whole discussion that started and ended, uh, is going to end with uh, Nick DeFries, now formerly of uh, Alpha Tauri. So apparently um, he's already got a couple of options to go back to, to Formula E, where he's uh, been uh, you know quite uh, successful in the past. So it seems that uh, the, the two most likely landing spots for DeFries, should he go back to Formula E, could be uh, either Nissan or Maserati MSG. So does that mean he's going to Madison Square Garden? I'm kidding, I'm kidding but it just uh, seems that you know maybe Nick DeFries maybe that is uh, he's just a driver that uh, is just good and uh, excels in uh, in Formula E. Okay, so let's uh, now move a little bit away. Uh, actually I should check the updated uh <laughs> Okay, I'm going to go back here. Got ahead of myself again. Now that uh, thankfully you sent me the updated uh, show outline. So from Yepa Olson, so uh, no tweet here. The the FI had set an internal deadline of June 30th, 2023, to evaluated submitted applications from the new teams who aim to be on the grid from in 2025 or 2027. A source tells me two applications have been given the green light to continue their process. 
So who is that going to be? Because the next story that we have from uh, racefans.net is apparently that uh, Michael Andretti has been to everybody up and down the the, the, the F1 paddock here and uh, with, with, with a checkbook in hand and a pen ready to write a check uh, about buying a team out. And apparently nobody wants to sell. I mean, that can't be Ferrari. I mean, Ferrari would never sell. I can't believe that, you know, like even if he had the money to do so, he could either buy out Ferrari or, or, or Mercedes. That just doesn't seem that, uh, you know, all the other, even, even Red Bull. Okay. You take out those, you know, three teams. Maybe there's potential with the, the, the other seven, maybe not uh, Aston Martin, but maybe six teams, six teams out of 10, maybe potentially, but I don't, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, even going up to, to Woking and giving Zach Brown, uh, you know, a, a check to say, oh, I want to buy out to McLaren, or I guess, you know, is, is it uh, Emirati money or Qatari money that uh, is behind uh, McLaren Bahrain, now? I, I, I can't remember. Bahraini. Okay. I knew, I knew it was a country from, from, uh, you know, down the Gulf region, but you know, it. um, I just, I, I just don't see it uh, happening, and I just, as, as this goes on, that I, I just get the feeling that if it was going to happen for for Andretti Motorsport and Michael Andretti, it would have happened a couple of years ago with that, uh, you know, the, the rumors flying around. I guess it would have been in 2021 that uh, you know he'd offered was a 300 million for Sauber or whatever it was. Of course, that never went through, and then uh, Audi came in and. That uh, you know what used to be Sauber, which is now Alfa Romeo, is going to become the the Audi Works team in 2026. But I'd be interested to hear your take on this one, Hammy. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that we're starting to to hear some tidbits about what that FIA expression of interest process looks like. But I think we've got this other story here that you were just referencing a couple of minutes ago, written by Ida Wood and Hazel Southwell over at RaceFans.net, and they've got some really great quotes from from uh, Michael Andretti, and I think he's gotten an awful lot of pushback from the existing teams right and we've we've discussed this ad nauseum the fact that he came in like a truck without brakes into that paddock and basically demanded his spot on the grid like if we go back to Miami 2022 last year this is a guy that had a blank sheet of paper and was walking around from hospitality suite to hospitality suite demanding that team principals support him with a signature like I want your signature supporting my bid like dude that's not how business works that ultimately F1 is a closed club these teams have invested hundreds of millions or maybe a billion dollars in infrastructure and investments, et cetera, et cetera. You can't just bully your way onto the grid. And I think that the FIA ultimately initiated this expressions of interest protocol, but that's not a slam dunk because even though Michael Andretti says, well, the teams don't get a say, they don't, like they're not going to vote on this, but they have an awful lot of influence over the decision that Liberty's going to make. And Liberty's the one that's ultimately going to sign off on this. And there's this great article, like I said, from Ida Wood and Hazel Southwell. And basically he acknowledges that, hey, all the teams told me, just go and buy a team. They're like, you're not going to get on the grid through expansion. They don't want to love a team, buy a team. And what he says is, we've tried. Nobody's interested. We've been to every single team. They keep saying, well, buy a team and nobody wants to sell. You go there and they're not even interested in talking. I've been there, done that and not happy. Furthermore, he says he's not really paying attention to F1, whose teams have been publicly dismissive of his efforts. And he continues by saying, everybody has their own reasons why they're doing things. They're trying to protect their interests, which I can't blame them. But every 
everyone's been looking out for themselves. And that was the biggest thing. When I said that I got criticized because I didn't agree with it, if I was in their situation, the teams, I'd, I'd probably do the same thing. So I don't blame the teams. They're all going to look out at this situation for themselves because that's what they need to do to be competitive. It's a very expensive sport. He continues, very expensive. There's a lot involved and there's a lot of commitment from every team. So they got to make sure they protect that. And I understand that that's what they're trying to do. But in the end, they're not going to be the ones that make that decision. Eh? It's going to be up to the series, Liberty, and the FIA decide if they think it's the right thing to do. And like I said, yeah, right. Like the teams aren't going to vote. This isn't like the NHL or the NBA where the teams ultimately vote on allowing expansion, but the teams have a massive amount of influence over Liberty's decision here. And if the teams don't agree with this at $200 million or even a billion dollars, they're not going to sign up for it. The other comments I saw earlier this week, and I thought it was pretty interesting, is Michael Andretti's openly now regretful of the way that he initially approached F1 in terms of kind of that truck without the brakes barging into the paddock, demanding a spot on the grid. Uh, he's openly regretful and has acknowledged that in hindsight, he probably would have done things a little bit differently. The other thing that he's been really defensive about this week is I think there's been a lot of criticism about the proposed partnership with Cadillac. And of course, I think initially a lot of people said, hey, you need to bring something to F1. So he went and got Cadillac and GM. He's like, hey, they're our technical partner. We're bringing General, Mo General Motors to F1. And people initially got excited. And then of course, it turns out like, well, are they really involved? Because you're simply going to buy a Renault power engine or power unit and rebadge it as a GM. Like, what are they contributing? So he's been very much on the defensive this week and has argued that quote unquote general managers is general motors is very very involved with this people are trying to say well they're just putting their name on it that being the power unit no it's a very very integral part of the whole team and part of the team i think once everything goes public on what we submitted of course that would be the fi expression of interest once everything goes public on what we submitted you'll see that it's a big investment so yeah just some I, basically, our weekly Michael Andretti update, Mr. Daly. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny, too, if you think about it, if you flip it around to like any other sport, could you imagine if he wanted to buy like a team or get a team in the NFL, right? Could you imagine going to like the Super Bowl and going to all the different, uh, you know, the owners there, going up to Jerry Jones and just say to him, Jerry, I want you to sign this uh, sheet of paper saying that you support me, you know, being awarded my own franchise. If you're Jerry Jones, you'd look at him and it's like, you know, dude, you're crazy. Like, get out of here. And then imagine then you come back later on and you you know you don't have you know you you talk a good game but you don't really have anything behind you it's like okay jerry let's sit down i brought my checkbook tell me how much i, I want to buy the dallas cowboys how much do you want for the cowboys i'll write you a check right right now i mean when, when you, I, I know i'm kind of simplifying and being like a little bit facetious and cynical about it but i mean i, I think it's uh, you know a relevant uh, example in a context that a lot of us can can understand away from from formula one i mean we look at that it you know like you know you'd be a little bit you know, viewed as being a little bit sus, right? I, I got to bring this up and it's not even related. It's a little bit related, but um, if you don't remember, <laughs> if you don't remember, Donald Trump has a very long and contentious history with the NFL. And in 2015, when the Buffalo Bills were on the market and there was a bunch of groups that bid, including a Toronto group and a local Buffalo group led by the Sabres owners. But Donald Trump also bid on the Buffalo Bills in 2015 and his bid wasn't, wasn't really close to what the, the final kind of accepted bid was. But I was reading a story the other day and they were saying like, imagine if Donald Trump had won that bid and had bought the Buffalo Bills. How different, because presumably at that point, he doesn't proceed with his presidential election. Um, imagine, imagine how different world politics and world history would be if Donald Trump had just, just bought the Buffalo Bills. Anyways, that's, that's super unrelated, but 
Yeah, I know. You know, I you know, just but it's kind of funny because there is a bit of Formula One tie-in to uh, you know to the Buffalo Bills. I don't know if you remember seeing it last year, but there was a video going around of uh, Danny Ricardo throwing a ball oh, with, yeah. uh, with Josh Ricardo's Allen. A that was a huge cool. Buffalo Bills fan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was pretty cool. But it was funny because if you saw the picture of Danny Rick standing beside Josh Allen, I mean, Josh towered over Danny Rick. And this is, you know, without the pads, without anything on, it's just like, I mean, it's funny just the size of like difference between, you know, like like an NFL athlete and a Formula One driver. I mean, both of whom are exceptionally talented, exceptionally gifted athletes in their own sports. But I mean, uh, you know, Josh Allen would probably wear a Formula One car like a sneaker, you know. It's just like, I mean, he, he, obviously he wouldn't fit inside that uh, that that car, but that was a kind of a, a pretty daily. Cool, let me pivot. Uh, spot. Let me pivot here because Road and Track has written an article. This was by Fred Smith of Road and Track, and this article states Martin Brundle's gridwalk confrontations, quote unquote. Martin Brundle's gridwalk confrontations are getting out of hand. Do you watch these things? Do you care? What is your opinion of the the disaster that continues okay, to be okay. these gridwalks? Okay, okay. So first of all, not not that I have anything against uh, Fred Smith or Roden Track. Love Roden Track. I've been reading Roden Track since I was a kid. But Fred's article was published on July 9th, so just a couple of days ago. So I've got a clip here of one of Martin's gridwalks. Actually, this is a post race thing from 2006. So check this out. On up there. Kimmy, you missed the presentation by Pele. Yeah. Will you get over it? <laughs> yeah, I, I was having a shit. <laughs> okay, thanks for that. Now, yeah, obviously you'll have a nice light car on the grid then. So, okay, you know, they, so that was Kimmy Raikkonen so what you're and Martin is Brundle. So there's a long, so, complicated history of him on the grid doing it, interviews. It, much like, you know, people's relationship statuses on Facebook, it, it, it's complicated. But, you know, joking aside, you know, I... I, I do respect Martin Brundle. I think, you know, he's he's been around for a long time. I think he's very professional. But, you know, this all started, I guess, was, was this at, at, at Coda last year with Megan the Stallion? 2021, Megan the Stallion. It was 21. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. So it's a little bit uh, you know, longer than that. I thought it was only last year. Okay, so so please, you know, go on. Yeah, no, I just, I think this is, and I guess the, the crux of the issue is that on Sky Sports, they broadcast a segment prior to the formation lap where former F1 driver Martin Brundle basically trundles around the F1 grid with his Sky TV microphone and sticks it in people's faces and asks them questions. And a lot of people on the grid are celebrities, they're musicians, they're politicians. And I think sometimes these folks are receptive and they're happy to have a conversation with them. But I think more often than not, these conversations kind of go a little bit sideways. And we saw that with Brad Pitt, although Brad Pitt later apologized. We saw it with Owen Wilson. Of course, we saw it with Megan the Stallion. And to be fair, sometimes his approach is, is a little bit I shouldn't say cavalier, but a little bit disrespectful. And the way he went at Megan the Stallion was, of course, hey, can you rap for us? Like, dude, what are you doing? Like, Megan, Megan the Stallion is not about to kind of start rapping on the grid of a Formula One race. Like, <laughs> it just it just wasn't a good look. But at the same time, you know what? I kind of sympathize with the media side of this, which is, look, if celebrities and musicians and politicians are going to walk around the grid and they know that the media is down there with a microphone, like you should be prepared to have a conversation. And if you're not prepared to have a conversation, maybe you shouldn't be down there at all. So there was an incident on the weekend once again, um, and I quote here from Road and Track, as Brundle requested a conversation with model and actress Cara. How do I say that last name? I, I'm such a 
I'm such a boomer that I can't pronounce this. <laughs> Delavine. Kara? Is it Kara or Kara? I, I don't know. I, I would I would say it either way, but you know the the, the point is then you know like I, I had to Google who this was after the Me fact too. because you know like and, I, and I'm I don't just mean not this interested as a shot. That kind I just I don't know. No, no, but neither do I. Ultimately, he yeah. he approached her um, and she politely declined a couple of times. And she was with a representative. She was a guest of Alfa Romeo Sauber, but he kept pushing. He kept pushing. She kept declining, and it was just another really awkward moment. And he was arguing like, "Hey, look, you have to. Everyone that's on the grid has to talk. Has to talk." Has to talk. And it just became yet another uncomfortable moment. So whether he was right, whether he was wrong, whether she should have spoke, whether she shouldn't have spoken, I just feel like the shtick is done. And ultimately I speak with, with the app and I don't watch it. I don't go read back to see it. So the only time that this whole Brundle track walk thing even even becomes a reality for me is when these stories pop up. And if they're going to continue to pop up, it's not a good look for F1. It's not a good look for Sky. And it's not a good look for the celebrities. Just kill it or just don't watch it. But yeah, again, another another uncomfortable moment this weekend as uh, Miss Delavine um, was approached, politely declined, and was conti- was continually pressed by, by Martin Brendel, who believed, and I don't know if this is true or not, um, but believed that he had the right to ask questions and that all celebrities on the grid had to answer questions. So just a bad look altogether. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I, I can understand that if like you've been invited to be like a special guest by like a Formula One team and you're not really prepared to answer questions, that's, that, that's one thing. But again, if you're down there, like, like, you know, it's, it's kind of a situation where you're damned if you do or you're damned if you don't. And, you know, it's like, I know I obviously I don't roll in those circles, but, you know, the, the whole celebrity thing kind of tied into Formula One, you know, I'm I'm it's not really my thing. I don't really care about it like yourself. It's just like I, I'm here for the racing. I'm here to talk about like like everything that happens in the cars, about the cars on the track and everything like that. And all that other stuff just becomes kind of like a bit of like uh, to, to me, a bit of noise and a little bit kind of, you know, I, I don't really need it. And, you know, quite frankly, I, I don't think it really, you know, that the whole celebrity tie in doesn't really to me doesn't add anything to Formula One unless, you know, they want to be kind of like. I know they try to pair themselves to be kind of like with the Hollywood crowd or something like that, I guess. I don't know. But uh, I suppose it kind of always kind of was its own kind of peak elite kind of thing. I don't know. Anyways, it was awkward. Uh, but speaking of awkward, we'll try and find a less awkward you know, segue into the next article. And that's uh, a fuel bird is uh, set uh, for a return to Formula One for the, uh, you know, as a result of the 2026 engine uh, plan. So, uh, Mark, what you've, you're, you're over yeah, uh, baby. this. Uh, I'll take this one. This, this, is, this is just a thing. lot better than it. talking about the Martin Brundle grid walk. So, first of all, I think we should... <laughs> We should define this concept of fuel burn. And I think in F1, fuel burn is basically a reference to um, an action by a driver that results in the burning of fuel for a purpose other than acceleration, for producing torque. And we've seen it in the past where drivers would sometimes burn fuel late in qualifying to get the car as light as possible so they can go out and do one really quick lap on fresh tires, et cetera, et cetera. But this is kind of building on that story that we talked about last week and I think the week before, which is as the 2026 engine regulations start to crystallize, because of course, they've been agreed to largely in principle and teams like Ferrari and Mercedes and Honda and Red Bull are starting to build out those engines and they're starting to get them through simulators. One of the things that we've discovered is that that promised 50-50 split between power that's generated from 
electricity through the MGUK and power that's generated through the internal combustion engine and the turbocharger. I think what the simulations are starting to show is, look, it's going to be really challenging to to do that split effectively. And by that, I mean, it's going to be really hard for these cars to harvest enough electrical energy to source 50% of the power that's deployed on track through the electrical system. And what this article states, and we talked a little bit about this last week with, with a Max Verstappen quote, is the teams are arguing that the teams or the teams are arguing, sorry, that in some instances, they're effectively going to have to burn fuel as a mechanism of allowing the cars to harvest harvest electricity through that shift. So it's, it's a really complicated kind of uh, situation. I'm just trying to find a really, really great quote here. So this is a quote from motorsport.com. With F1's 2026 rules opening up the door for greater reliance on battery power, which is set to produce 50% of the entire engine performance, teams are searching for ways to help charge batteries. And one of the best ways that have emerged is for the engines to continue delivering torque to the crankshaft so that energy can be harvested by the MGUK, even when it's not needed by the driver. So what they're saying here is we are going to spin up that internal combustion engine, we are going to spin up the RPMs and we are going to burn fuel, not for the purpose of laying down power on the track, but rather because we want that power to be captured through the drivetrain and harvested for the electrical battery. And this is, it's, it's, it's a really weird thing to talk about because on the one hand, we're talking about 2026 and we're talking about the fact that we're talking about sustainable solutions and more electrification and things like that. But on the other hand, we're saying, hey, the drivers are going to purposely burn fuel because they need to charge the battery. Now, speaking at the British Grand Prix, Mercedes F1 engine chief, Highwell Thomas, he looks after HPP, which is, of course, the high performance powertrains division that's in, I think, Bricksworth is, I think it's like 27 miles north of Brackley, which is the Mercedes power unit um, manufacturing center and development center. He said that absolutely that will be a real thing. He said, referring to fuel burn, we'll be running the engine when the driver is not asking for much torque in order to charge the battery. It was well understood when we were coming up with these regulations that that was going to be a part of them. And with the fuel being sustainable fuel, it was considered that that was an acceptable and a relevant approach to the problem. He continues, it's going to be a completely different combustion system as the amount of fuel is reduced. There's some details around compression, et cetera, et cetera. But his point here being like, hey, we all knew that this was going to have to happen, that if we want to generate 50% of the power the drivers lay down through the electrical system, we need to be able to create electrical energy by burning fuel, which is just crazy. And his explanation here is like, hey, ultimately it's okay. And we all conceded that this is okay because we're going to be running a sustainable fuel. But it's just really, really, really peculiar to me. Now, building on this, one of the individuals that's been most vocal about this arrangement, this kind of 50-50 electrical power to internal combustion power has been has been Christian Horner. And he's been a real critic and saying, hey, we need to move that threshold. Like, generating 50% of the power from the electrical system is too much. Like it's not good if the drivers have to start downshifting on the straights to create electrical power for that energy store. That's not good. We don't want that. And there's a variety of reasons why that's really bad. Other than the fact that of course it influences and changes the way that the drivers approach the race. But what he's been saying is we need to move to a 55, 45 split where, Hey, 55% of the power can come from the internal combustion engine. 45% of the power can come from the, the battery system. Now, Total Wolf indicated that, hey, look, that's not real. That's not realistic, that ultimately we have really smart engineers and we're going to be able to overcome this engineering challenge. Now, 
Christian Horner slammed back this week with a really interesting take. And he said, I'm not sure how close Toto is to his engine business because he's a customer. He's not involved in HPP's business formally. The feedback that I'm getting from the business, and as you start to see the program really coming to life, and as the simulations firm are, are some of the limitations which are inevitable. So I would say it's perhaps it was a result of us maybe being well advanced and that we're starting to see some of the limitations. So he's one taking a shot at Total Wolf here because Total Wolf full disclosure, doesn't oversee the Mercedes power unit program. That in a sense, even though they kind of fit under the same corporate umbrella, they're kind of a customer team. And of course, they have a really close relationship. Brackley and Bricksworth are 27 miles apart. They work very closely together. But what he's saying is, hey, I oversee the development of the RB19 and the RB20, and I fully oversee the power unit division. Total doesn't do that. So one, he's taking a shot at Total, which is a little underhanded. But what he's also saying is, look, the reason why Total and these other team principals feel good about the promised regulations is because they're not as far along the development path as we are, that we're now surfacing these conclusions and these observations because our simulator data is so advanced. So very, very interesting. But as it stands today, if we rolled out the 2026 power units as expected, drivers would have to intentionally burn excess fuel to power the battery, which to me is just bizarre. It, it is. And, you know, the cynic in me sort of goes back to the uh, the little video I saw on Twitter one time of the guy using a gas-powered generator to charge his Tesla. <laughs> you know, exactly. I, That's I, perfect. I mean, that, it's perfect. You know, yeah. Yeah, and it sort of kind of isn't. I mean, the 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 difference here is like uh, Highwell Thomas pointed out is that they're using sustainable fuels. Now that's where I I get really excited about twenty twenty six. Is what what is the fuel going to be uh, like, and also what the new engine formula is going to look like too? Because they keep talking about these uh, like exotic sustainable biofuels and things like that. So I, I'm really that's really piqued my interest uh, where that's uh, going to go. But that that is very very fascinating too because we we know that since Red Bull set up a RBPT a couple of years ago and since they've partnered especially just earlier this year with with uh, with, with Ford that um, you know they're putting a lot of ton of uh, efforts and energy into this uh, the, this program so I mean you know <laughs> they could be like you say much further down this development uh, pathway than than everyone else and that are encountering these engineering pro- you, know, uh, you, know, you know issues and um, that's where I also find it very fascinating is you know how are the engineers going of engineer a way around this and solve the problem and um I, i'm excited to see what it is but i i know it's not going to be easy it's going to be a challenge no matter what uh, no, no matter what they do okay hammy let's uh, take another break when we come back we're going to finally talk about diva 2.0 and we'll do that in just a moment so please don't go go away we'll be right back All right, welcome back. So Mercedes, apparently, according to Jonathan Noble at motorsport.com, is uh, ready to switch their full focus to their 2024 contender for the Formula One World Championship and finally abandon Diva 2.0. Mark, I'm not even going to try to attempt to start this one because you seem so keen, excited to, you know, er earlier this show, oh, we're going to talk about this later in the show. So that moment is finally here and you look a little bit subdued here. I thought thought you were going to be more excited to do so. I'm, I'm sad, <laughs> Mark, because a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Lewis Hamilton himself had come out and said, hey, it's time for us to pivot. We got to pivot away from developing the W 
14. We've got to pivot and start focusing on the W15. And I said, no, there's still so much that you can get out of the W14. Don't give up yet. But Total Wolf has come out and said, like, look, you know what? Our, our hand is kind of forced here, which is we know now the limitations of the chassis and we feel that we've optimized it to the best of our ability. But he also makes a really great point, which is, look, the reason that McLaren has made so many leaps and bounds is because they benefit from significantly more wind tunnel and CFD time than we do. So, hey, look, we basically ran out of our wind tunnel time. We ran out of our CFD time. Like we're we're at the end of our kind of research and development capabilities here. And McLaren, they've got tons because they finished so poorly in the Constructors Championship last year. And of course, your kind of your finish, your your classification in the Constructors Championship is ultimately how your available CFD and wind tunnel time is allocated. But basically what he's saying is here, look, and I see he says, and I quote, I think we are restricted by the cost cap and by the relative less amount in wind tunnel and CFD time that McLaren was able to have. He says they finished further back in the championship and they were like fifth or sixth mid-year. So they carried over that more wind tunnel time allocation. And that's why it's kind of difficult. Do I believe that we have upgrades in there that are going to fundamentally change the car, the W14? I don't believe so, but we have a few small steps that are to come. And as or and you can see that if you find the tenth or two or three, it puts you in a different position on the grid. So ultimately, I I think we're maybe at the end of the development journey for the W14. He says, you know what, maybe we get a couple of small pieces. We certainly won't expect any new major aerodynamic surfaces. We probably won't see a new rear wing. We probably won't see a new floor, but it's a little bit upsetting in the sense that, hey, at times this year, especially after Monaco, especially after Spain, we felt that Mercedes was going to make that quantum leap, but their development journey is over. And maybe the W14 is just what it is, that it's going to perform well at some tracks and it's not going to perform so well at other tracks where other teams like like McLaren, Dave and, and Williams, we talked about Williams on the weekend as well, that these teams benefited by this increased allocation of basically R&D time in the tunnel with CFD. They've still got some runway left before they run out of, of new upgrades to bring. So it's sad, uh, but maybe we can just enjoy the progress that Williams and, and McLaren are going to continue to make as the season progresses. I really feel like this is a story that's like one year too late. I really feel like this is something that 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 should have been in the news in 2022, and maybe maybe not this early in 2022. Maybe a, a year is saying too much, but it, it was obvious that even though once they you know made the adjustments to the W13 to eliminate the porpoising issues, was that it, it didn't seem no matter what they did to that car, the W13. 13, that it just wasn't going to be a competitive car in, in Mercedes uh, terms, right? Compared to all the predecessors, especially the cars that were so dominant from, from 2014 to 2020 and, you know, even in 2021, that uh, th this car was, you know, and I know they had a lot of hopes that they would be able to uncork and unleash all the potential that they thought that this uh, design concept had, but it obviously never got to that uh, that that point. So I I was very surprised when they 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 came out with the W14, which basically looked like a Control C Control V, you know, cut and paste kind of job there, or copy paste kind of job, and I wasn't too surprised that they they moved away from it. But 
again, I was I was a little bit surprised. It, it took them as many races into 2023 before they decided to pivot away from you know their you know the plan A to plan B, and now I just kind of feel like they're they're going to tread water for the rest of the year. And and like you say, it's just like maybe you'll be good at some tracks, maybe you'll be better at others, and it's, it'll be just kind of a bit of a, a toss of the dice, which seems very strange you know, communicating from Mercedes, right? Because we've all known for years that, uh, that, that, that they, they just show up to win and that's what they, they do is they, they go win, you know, you know, motor races. So to, to kind of like hear that, that language from them seems very, it doesn't, doesn't seem very logical to me. It's like, kind of like, yeah, it is what it is. And we're, we're just going to try, we're going to put all, I, I mean, it's not like they're giving up. I mean, they're obviously throwing all their, their time and effort into ve- developing next year's car, but they, they're all sort of like, yeah, it, it is what it is. We'll, we'll see what happens to the rest of the year. Just doesn't doesn't seem very on brand for Mercedes. Daily, that point you make about the W14 being Control C, Control V is really apt. And I think if we reflect back now on the last year and a half, the worst possible thing that happened to Mercedes was that they won that race in in Brazil. The fact that they had such a great weekend with that sprint race victory with George Russell and George Russell taking his maiden Grand Prix victory, that, and, and totals acknowledge this now, that gave them the confidence that they were on the right tr- design track and they carried over so much conceptually of the W13 into the 20, W14. And of course, they they made some great upgrades and they made some strides this year. But I think fundamentally, the problem here is the chassis and it's the monocoque. And you, you can change the floor, you can change all of the aerodynamic surfaces, but it's really difficult with the regulations and the cost cap to change the monocoque mid-season. So I think when we look at the W15 next year, I think it's going to fundamentally look different and it's going to have a totally transformed chassis. And and maybe they'll be able to carry over some of their learnings in terms of the floor and the floor edges and the wings and things like that. But it's remarkable to think, and we talk so much about this in 2020 and 21, that some teams are going to get the new regs right and some teams are going to get the new regs wrong. I just don't think either of us expected that Mercedes would have written off two years with the W13 and the W14. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was going to say that it's it's never a bad thing or an unfortunate thing to win a Grand Prix, but like like you say, I mean, it was for them when they 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 were so dominant in Brazil, and George had that uh, that career weekend where he was just uh, just he was just flawless. I mean, it was uh, it was imp- it wasn't flawless, but I mean, he had about a good of a weekend that, uh, that 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 he could have. I mean, but the timing was terrible because it's right at the end of the year. It's like, oh, okay, you know, maybe you know, this is where we need to be. We we you know, we we just have to do a little bit more where this this uh, what we think this car is going to be able to do is finally here we can take that into 23 and you know we're, we're, we're back on track but had that happened to say great britain or austria or somewhere in the in the first half of the season and then they struggled and kind of went back to where they were before that then you know they would have had the indication yeah it was just a, a bit of an outlier we had uh, it was very very good or the car was suited very well to that track and uh but not anywhere else so yeah, kind of, kind of strange to think, though, Hammy. Like you say, that uh, would we ever been here to to really say that or watch Mercedes, uh, you know, dwell and kind of like hang on to what is like a an unfulfilled design concept, and you know, for for almost two years before they decided, 
to walk away from it. It just, um, I'm having trouble getting my mind around that. So thank you for the, uh, you know, blowing my mind in the middle of the show. So <laughs> anyways, uh, just uh, another uh, quick one here before we talk to uh, about another story. I think both of you and I are very excited to talk about. But apparently, uh, before we get to that, uh, Alpine has uh, decided to shuffle their motorsport management structure under CEO Laurent Rossi. And they've uh, shuffled the senior management structure to help uh, provide better clarity for all its uh, motorsport activities, including Formula One. So uh, Rossi has embarked on some pretty ambitious plans to uh, expand sales of uh, the, the French sports car manufacturer. And uh, so what he's done is he's appointed Alpine's F1 uh, engine chief Bruno Femin as VP of Alpine Motorsports. So he will report directly to Rossi and will manage all the company's motorsport activities. That includes Formula One, sports car racing and rally raid ambitions. And uh, Alpine is uh, there uh, su- uh, providing technical support to Dacia on his Dakar project. And and uh, Femin will also uh, lead the Alpine Academy, which is its uh, young driver program. Okay, so the next one that we wanted to talk about is uh, Brad Pitt and his Formula One movie project. And so uh, Brad said he's having the time of his life making the F1 movie. And, uh, well, they are all over the place at Silverstone uh, this uh, this uh, past weekend. And I know this is going to be a little bit at odd saying, you know, because we were just saying here like literally five minutes ago that we don't really need to see the Hollywood crowds <laughs> in Formula One. But uh, but but at least for, for, you know, what we're talking about here, Brad's doing it for the right reasons. They're they're making a Formula One movie. They've got all the technical support, uh, you know, behind them. They've got like a car built uh, for it, which is basically a you know a very fancy F two car, which has uh, been you know uh, been upgraded to look like a Formula One car. And they've had input uh, from uh, Mercedes there. So it's it's very cool to see you know um, not only uh, uh, Brad Pitt but some of the different co-stars that they had. They even had a mocked up uh, garage at uh, you know in the pits at Silverstone with the the names. What was it Sunny Hayes and Joshua Pierce? I think are the two names of the characters in the movie that are played by Brad Pitt and at his co-star. So it's it, it's pretty cool that it's it's happening, and I think that this is going to be a movie that once it's all said and done. It's going to be the real deal. It's not going to be like one of these lame duck movies like Stallone's Driven that came out like Whoa, 20 years dare. ago, which was... Don't, don't you even go there? <laughs> like that's... okay. Oh, I went there. Okay. I went there. So that is an appallingly... <laughs> I don't know. I find it so watchable. But then again, I haven't watched it in 15 years, so maybe I should go back and see it. The one thing about Driven, yeah, though... Yeah, but dude, remember, remember, did you not so long ago say that uh, that you watched uh, the what was it the the, the ballad of Ricky Bobby? And oh, that was unwatchable. Like, That's you so wildly yeah, inappropriate. It, it, <laughs> that movie never gets made today. Holy, that never gets made. No, today. it doesn't. It, no, I was, I, I was so excitedly <laughs> so, showed that movie to my my wife and our son's godmother. I'm like, oh, it's so good. It's like pure 2006 goodness. I'm like, oh man, I'm uncomfortable watching this now. Driven is bad for other reasons, not because of inappropriate humor, yeah. but I think it's still worth yes. worth checking out. The one consideration, though, is as we understand the plot for Apex, which is the movie that you're speaking to, um, the plot is almost identical, which is a seasoned veteran driver, in this case, Brad Pitt, is brought out of retirement to help bring along a young teammate, a young rookie. But you're right that what we saw from Silverstone was they seemed to blend seamlessly into the paddock. Like They set up a garage for them. They were walking amongst the paddock. They were filming on track during the race weekend with the Silverstone crowds in the background. And the car looks pretty good. So I don't know 
the name of the team or I can't remember the name of the team, but um, it's Black. It's Apex. It's Ape- of co- oh, of course. That's why the movie's called Apex. The team is called Apex Formula One. <laughs> but the car looks good. It's the best looking black and gold Formula One car since, I guess, the Rich Energy Haas car from a couple of years ago. <laughs> um, but it looks, this one's not defrauding anyone. But yeah, it looks uh, it looks pretty good and I'm super excited. I, I guess it's probably a 2024 release. And isn't it remarkable that Brad Pitt's 58 and is starring in a film as a Formula One driver? He's got 16 years on Fernando Alonso. I know. Well, that, that that's the you know the, the the interesting thing about it, right? But uh, you know the wonders of uh, Hollywood makeup and special effects. I'm sure will shave plenty of years off of uh, Brad Pitt, which I, I still can't believe he's 58 years old. Makes me feel extremely extremely old. But uh, you know, such is life. But yeah, you know, I mean, just uh, talking about that, like you know. As I was saying a little bit earlier, I don't really stay up to date with uh, Hollywood things, not even Hollywood projects that are like so closely tied in with Formula One. It wasn't until I sat down and and, and looked at some of the material that uh, you'd sent me, uh, you know, in preparation for this show that when I saw like what they'd done at Silverstone and, you know, the fact that I probably wasn't paying attention, even if it was pointed out during the official broadcast, you know, that's that's completely on me. But um, I was impressed with what I saw and, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely excited to to see what uh, this final production looks like. I mean, basically, they want to do for Formula One with this movie, what Tom Cruise did with Top Gun Maverick, which uh, was released this time last year and, and make it as realistic as as, uh, as possible because I mean Brad himself has been in the car he's been driving the car I mean some of like the, the the real competitive racy scenes are done by you know like you know actual race drivers by professionals um, you know that's you know I mean no disrespect to, to Brad but I mean I mean it's, it's good for him to do what you know Tom did for 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 Top Gun Maverick to get into the car and do what he can I mean it just uh, I mean the like the scenes that we saw in Top Gun Maverick I mean if you went and saw that uh, you know in the theater i mean it was just spectacular on the big screen and i have no doubt that uh, that apex will be exactly the same thing that uh, you know in terms of um, you know putting you in the cockpit of the car will be like nothing that we've ever seen and i mean we get some pretty good stuff that we see like each and every uh, race weekend. I mean, you know, the, even though we don't get full 4K for the, the the race broadcast, I mean, it's still pretty good what we see. But I mean, th- this, I think, with all the, you know, the Hollywood special effects and everything put into it, I think the final product is going to be spectacular. At least I, I'm hoping it will be. All right. So, Mark, let's move on. Finally, we got a new segment here. That's what the, the new music is here in the background. So I'm going to let you uh, take this away for our F1 Academy update, roundup, corner. Where, where did it's we land with, the uh, with, with this It's Academy one? Compound. It has two meanings. Compound, compound, like a big estate, a big home, a stately home, and also compound in the sense that... Yeah, but a compound, like, kind of like when regarded, like, or like in reference to home, reminds me of a place with like big guard towers, and, like barbed wire around it, you know, like intended it's to too keep late, people daily. out. It's too late. And it's, it's, it's too, too late. It's I've late. already copyrighted it. <laughs> We're done. We're moving on. Fair enough. Okay. A couple of things. So we actually have a listener question this week. And this question comes from Laura. And Laura's question is, hey, I've been listening to you guys talk about F1 Academy for a couple of months now. Can you share some details of the cars? And a quick update. They are effectively, in a lot of ways, a Formula 4 spec car. So they use the exact same chassis as every global Formula 4 championship. From a power unit perspective, they feature 1.4 liter turbocharged four-cylinder engines that generate, according to Wikipedia, 
NVIDIA 174 horsepower at a very low 5,500 RPM. And that doesn't sound like a lot, right? Like, hey, my Volkswagen Tiguan generates more horsepower than that. But my Volkswagen Tiguan weighs 4,000 pounds and these things weigh nothing. So that is a very considerable amount of horsepower. Now it is a completely spec series as all Formula 4 championships are. So drivers have a little bit of customiz customizability when it comes to suspension and, and things like that. But ultimately it's a spec series. And that's one of the things that makes F1 Academy so cool is that ultimately all of the drivers are running with the exact same equipment. So it really helps to demonstrate the capability of the drivers one next to another. And it's especially important for a development series. Now, a couple of interesting stories this week. So last weekend was Monza. So of course, so far this year, we've been to the Red Bull Ring, we've been to Valencia, we've been to Catalonia, we've been to Zandvoort. We were just in Monza and we have, I think, one race left, one weekend left in France. And then we go to the Circuit of the Americas uh, in a couple of months to wrap up the season. But we were at Monza and a couple of the big takeaways from there were one, the halo saves lives once again. So there was a race this weekend and F1 Academy driver Chloe Grant openly thanked on social media the halo for saving her after her car flipped upside down and caught on fire, which was a terrifying moment. She said on social media, I'm just letting you know that I'm okay after my race one incident. Thank you to everyone that's been sending me lovely messages. I really appreciate it. I'm very grateful for the Halo style system. Because of the Halo system, I was able to get out without there being an issue with the fire because the fire was inside the car as well and I could see it. So without having the Halo there, I would have been trapped and I'm very lucky and very grateful for the Halo style system to be in place and for the F1 Academy to have it. Now, even more scary is that another driver on track, uh, I think, let me see if I can find out who that was, another driver on track, ah, Filipino driver Bianca Bustamante, who was briefly beneath Grant's airborne car, said on her own social media, this halo saved my life, because I guess what she's suggesting is that without the halo protecting her, the full weight of Chloe's car could have come crashing down on top of her. So again, halo to the rescue once again. And a couple of quick updates from the weekend. Uh, really great weekend for Marta Garcia. She won the race in round one. Uh, Lena Bueller finished second in that race and Jessica Edgar from the UK finished third in the second round, which of course is the reverse grid race. Lena Bueller won that race. Abby Pulling finished third and Bianca Bustamante, the young 18 year old Filipino driver finished second. And then we had a spectacular race in race three. Bianca finished first, her second race win of the season, followed up by Abby Pulling. And I think number three was Neyra Marti, uh, which I think was her best finish or maybe just her second best finish of the year. Either way, the championship right now, Marta Garcia sits on 190 points, followed by Hannah. Alcobasi, who had a softer weekend, a ninth place, a 10th place, and a retirement. And the third place, Elena Bueller, is sitting on 147 points. And then finally, we have some updates about the forthcoming F1 Academy docuseries. So obviously, we're really excited about that. Um, it continues to be through development. They are at every race. They've been doing some really great backstory with the individual drivers. Um, and then again, if we haven't mentioned this before, Academy Award winner Reese Witherspoon will be the executive 
executive producer alongside F1's head of original content, Isabel Stewart, with the show likely to follow the successful formula presented by Drive to Survive on Netflix. And of course, uh, here on Racing News 365, there's some really great quotes from Susie Wolf, who believes that this will be a, a great launching pad for the careers of these young drivers and to better publicize and promote the aspiring uh, young F1 Academy series. Very cool. Uh, glad to to hear that that's uh, in the in the works. And you know, when, when I hear stories, uh, especially that when you're just uh, mentioning about Chloe and you know the the, the halo that I, I can't believe for a moment going back four or five years, whatever it was when they were talking about introducing the halo that that I even had doubt for a minute that uh, this was the right thing to do. I mean, ultimately, I came to the decision that uh, you know I, I'm happy that uh, that they're that they're going with it. I was just like, I, I hope it's worth it because you know it doesn't look too great on the car. And when when I think when when I see now like how important that the that the halo is, to, you know, in and and how many lives and injuries that it's prevented, and how many lives that it saved, is like I, I can't believe that I even had like that 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 attitude. It's like, oh well, I hope it's worth it because you know it doesn't look all that great because I mean it is it been just such you know a vital thing that they've they've uh, put on the cars, and I, I think Total Wolf even had a similar attitude, and I think that uh, you know his. Uh, uh, you know, you know, he's uh, you know been quite public and you know trying to you know voice his support for the Halo. Being you know that I think he was quite you know anti Halo at the time, saying that he did he didn't want it on the cars at all. So I'm glad that uh, that the Halo's here and it's here here to stay. Anyways, Hammy, good place to to wrap it up. Uh, before we go, just remind everybody what you usually remind them of at this uh, time of the week. Oh, you want me to do it? Funny, Mr. Daly, that's the second time tonight you've put me on the spot, but I would love to do it. So if you enjoy what we do here and you listen on Spotify, if you can give us a rating, it means the world to both of us. And if you listen on Apple, if you could give us a rating and a review, we both appreciate that. We read every review and we try our best to share them on the air. Hopefully it's inspiration for other people to give us ratings and reviews. And honestly, that is the single best way that we can promote our show and get the show trending on all of these different podcasting platforms is to rate and reviews. So like I said, if you enjoy what we do here and you can give us a rating or a review, it is so, so important to our show and, and the future of our program. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, thank you one and all for listening to the show and just to uh, keep checking your feed because uh, we've got good stuff uh, coming all the time. If you want to get in touch, send us uh, an email, scooteriapod at gmail.com or tweet us at scooteriapod on uh, Twitter. And we'll start, uh, you know, as Mark was saying at the top of the show, we'll start getting established on threads as soon as uh, possible. For those of you that uh, want to use threads, we'll soon have a presence over there as well. And on behalf of myself and Mr. Mark Hamilton, thank you for listening listening enjoy your weekend and we'll be back uh, very very soon to do it all over again and that's it uh, from the scooter f1 uh, studios bye for now and have a good night <laughs>